Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Here's a fun story. I got off a flight. You know, you have a flight where you're like, you're hoping the Wi-Fi will work and it just doesn't. And you're like, oh, gosh. And like, and on campaigns, that's horrible. And especially in like a, a role like a campaign manager, like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to miss? And I landed and I've got the Daily Beast texting me being like, why is Andrew texting about circumcision? The year is 2019. Zach Grauman is Andrew Yang's campaign manager. And he just got off a flight to find out his candidate, Andrew Yang, is going viral, but not the way his strategist had hoped. And I was like, why am I getting this text message right now? Like, Sam Simon's like, this is hilarious. I'm writing peace on it. And I was like, oh, man, I guess we're going with circumcision now. I'm Eugene Daniels, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Sometimes I think of something that is too good not to show the world. Like how great my nails are, or I guess my take on a policy or something. And I know that I'm definitely not alone. Sure, it's fun for the sugar rush of owning the libs or piling on to the latest snarky thing, and that's, that's fine. Or have the urge to reply to a hot take that you just can't ignore. Yang was kind of famous for that, if you remember. And Andrew had replied, like, and he does. He would often reply to people on, on Twitter. And all the while, the social media machine keeps on moving, with old school media following not too far behind. There are journalists, opinion makers, influencers, and sort of the, the chattering class, the people who develop narratives. So it's important to make sure that your side of the story is at least present. For campaign insiders like Zach Grauman, this attention is crucial. The tactics you need to get attention that way are not the same tactics you need to impress the establishment and get them to line up behind you. Eric Wilson works inside GOP campaigns, and he says that in politics, sometimes... Social media can be more of a liability than an asset. You know, if you're a candidate and you have you have a really viral tweet, people don't know what district you're running for or what office you're seeking or anything about your campaign. So it is a cautionary tale, right? Social media has transformed pretty much every aspect of modern life, from the way we shop to the way we date to the way we get our news to the way American politics works. And while social media has reduced the power of the traditional gatekeepers who used to decide what's important and who gets to be heard, it's also provided new and more effective tools for those already behind the gates to stay in power, so long as they know how to pull the levers in the right way. Today, we're logging you into the minds of the strategists whose jobs it is to help candidates and politicians go viral. We had to make noise. We, we're competing in the attention economy. You're not just competing against Joe Biden. You're competing against Kim Kardashian and a Netflix special. And- or in some cases, save them from themselves. And so the lesson has to be, don't build your house on someone else's land, because there are a lot of campaigns who would be left out in the cold if Facebook or Twitter shut down tomorrow. As massively online as journalists and wonks and many politicians may be, one thing is still true. Twitter is not reality. But it's still really, really helpful. 
Zach Stanton is Playbook's deputy editor and a hopeless Twitter addict. Zach, this story came from your brain, so tell me, why? Well, first I want to quibble with the word hopeless in that. Uh, (laughs) If you're an uh, addict on Twitter, as far as I'm concerned, you're hopeless. Fair, fair. I'll I'll take it, I guess. You know, I first started thinking about this back in the 2020 campaign when after Kamala Harris's presidential campaign sort of imploded, there were a number of different postmortems about it. Mm -hmm. And many of them mentioned that some of her senior staff blamed other senior staff being too focused on what Twitter said and on what Twitter's reaction was to this or that in the campaign and didn't really realize that there was a disconnect between what happens in Twitter versus what happens in real life. And that comes at the exact same time as journalists are increasingly addicted to Twitter. As much as media types are glued to Twitter, what does it mean for people actually running for or serving in office? How, how much do they care about Twitter? Our first insider that we talked to didn't really mince words when I asked him a question that was just like that. It's top of mind for everyone, and I think the problem is you over-index for that. That's Eric Wilson. He's a GOP digital strategist and... I'm the managing partner of Startup Caucus. We're an investment fund and incubator for Republican campaign technology. He also picked up on my fondness for Twitter. You, you love Twitter, man. I, I do love Twitter. I'm an addict, unfortunately. Do you have uh, a Facebook account? I do have a Facebook account. Uh, See, I told you, you have a problem. You need some help. <laughs> <laughs> when you're advising a, a candidate or an organization, how cognizant are you of the fact that journalists seem to be kind of addicted to Twitter. The whole point of social media is that you don't need the gatekeepers of journalists or reporters. And, you know, anyone with a a camera and a microphone can broadcast their words. They don't need the FCC license. They don't need an editor. They don't need a publisher. And so that really has taken a lot of the power back. Uh, But I think a lot of candidates and operatives who still sort of came of age in the, the old way still like that third-party validation that comes from talking to the media and, you know, sort of having their words reported on in a a publication. And so I would actually go the other way and say, worry less about what the reporters think uh, and more about how it's going to be received. So just one practical example here. When we are sort of writing a tweet, we, we look at, okay, here are the words and we'll pick it apart. What we don't think about is what's the tweet on top of it and what's the tweet below it, Mm. right? And that's really how most people are going to experience it. So if you're not standing out in a compelling way, you're going to get ignored. So I think a lot of people are really worried about controversy and someone will say I'm wrong on the internet. Mm. But what you should really be worried about is being ignored because that's more likely to happen. How do you think that that's driving the way that candidates talk without getting into like the specifics of this example in the Ohio Republican Senate primary right now? You have, for lack of a better term, sort of an arms race between a couple different candidates as to who can seem perhaps most Trumpy or most outlandish almost on Twitter. And that seems deliberate. They're trying to generate interaction. They're trying to generate attention. Does the idea that you're trying to get all this attention, does that change the way that candidates use the platform? Candidates have to optimize for a few different things. So so different audiences that they're they're talking to. We know that most voters are more active on Facebook. So what's happening on Twitter is primarily performative, 
for either journalists, influencers, opinion makers, and you know other elected officials that, that you may need to win over or, or politicians. In order to break through on Twitter, right, you have to say, you know, sort of try and become the main character for the day. And so if you're playing that sort of status game, then that's the objective, particularly in light of, you know, restrictions from Twitter on political advertising. There is no other way to reach people on Twitter as a politician or political organization than retweets and replies and and stoking controversy. So the platform has sort of incentivized that race to the bottom uh, in in many ways for candidates. Doing the hard work of really building up a meaningful audience is tough. And so you look for ways to hack that. One of the things that we have to be very careful of with, with candidates is our goals on a campaign do not align with the goals of a social media platform. Hmm. The winner of an election is not the person who got the most retweets. It's not the person with the most followers on Facebook. You know, those can be correlated, but it's not an indicator. And so we have to remember that even though, you know, we want to be effective at Facebook and Instagram or YouTube, it ultimately has to serve the goals of of the campaign. And so unfortunately, some candidates can get lost in that fact and I guess over index for (laughs) being being uh, the main character on Twitter for a day, for example. But you're not necessarily reaching voters. Twitter users tend to lean much more liberal than conservative. So what is the goal of Republican campaigns when they use Twitter? You know, do you think Twitter is important for Republicans? Absolutely. It is important for Republicans because of of the audiences that are there. There are journalists, opinion makers, influencers, and sort of the, the chattering class, the people who develop narratives. So it's important to make sure that your side of the story is at least present. Otherwise, without a response, it'll seem like the charges or something aren't true. But again, it is not determinative. Voters who are deciding elections are not as active on Twitter as the people who are sort of writing about them minute by minute. It is not real life in that regard, but it is an important part of the narrative. So again, the right way to engage is to be clear on what your objectives are, what you're trying to get out of the platform. So with Twitter, you're trying to shape a narrative, make sure some facts or data points are available to people who are your allies on the platform. You know, with Facebook, you're you're trying to reach voters and aid through their decision making process. And then, you know, other platforms are more appropriate for other demographics and different types of content. But with Twitter, it's uh, sort of an elite class of opinion makers, journalists, uh, influencers, donors, operatives, that sort of thing that we engage with. Given the way that Twitter works, like, can you use it for persuasion or is it better for like riling up the base? It really is more of a narrative development tool for candidates and campaigns and their allies and making sure that relevant facts are there. And, you know, in many ways, the reporting has become downstream of the conversation on Twitter. So if you want to shape reporting, you've got to start doing work on Twitter. Can you speak about like a specific example of like a time that you've made that sort of calculation? A good example would be suppose there's a a negative story about a candidate coming from a a mainstream publication. There are sort of two routes you can go. You can, well, I suppose there are three. You could ignore it, which is the wrong thing to do. The second is you could provide your narrative of the facts and correct the record where you think it needs to be adjusted. Or third, ridicule it. Um, We've seen this done pretty effectively to sort of blunt the impact of a story. If the uh, headline is so egregious or the the take is so bad, uh, no one else will touch it for follow-ups, then you've succeeded with with Twitter. So that's probably a a good example of of how that works in combating the, the narrative. 
When you look at the type of messages that gain a lot of retweets among conservatives, there's a sort of tendency to do sort of owning the libs type stuff. Among liberals, there tends to be a sort of hashtag resistance type approach that infiltrates a lot of those comments. So as a strategist, how do you think through all that? Is the point in some ways for some Republican candidates to approach the highly liberal environment of Twitter so that you can engage in these sort of owning the libs type moments? Owning the libs for a day on Twitter doesn't do much for raising money and banking votes, uh, especially, you know, with the sort of context collapse. You know, if you're a candidate and you have you have a really viral tweet, people don't know what district you're running for or what office you're seeking or anything about your campaign. So it is a cautionary tale, right? So we've seen this in the influencer space, right? Someone has 2 million followers on Instagram uh, and they can't sell 36 t-shirts to their followers, right? So what you've got to be careful for is what is the game that you're playing? What are your objectives in engaging in a, a medium? And so sure, it's fun for the sugar rush of owning the libs or piling on to the latest snarky thing. And that's, that's fine. And that's um, may even be important for sort of getting people energized on your side and and showing that you're willing to engage in some of that combat, as it were. But you've got to build a good campaign, and that's building an email list, growing your text messaging subscribers, getting people to your website, developing content that people return to over and over again on Facebook and other platforms. So if you could pretend for a moment that I'm a Republican politician or someone thinking about running for a major office. I'm ready to sign you up. (laughs) What is the advice you would give me? Like, where do I start? What do I do online? And as part of that, what is the biggest thing that people like me get wrong? A lot of people, when they approach this, they, one, want it to be perfect from day one. They want to have a million followers and they want to be creating awesome content and everyone's commenting on it. But it takes time. The secret really to doing this well is is right in the name. It's social media. So the media part, a lot of people get, right? So posting photos and videos and links. But the social part is where people go wrong because anytime, you know, people are commenting or responding, uh, you want to accept those signals and, and respond to them, reply to comments, answer your DMs, really basic social skills that if we saw you not observing them in a party, we would say that person is a sociopath. And instead, uh, we need to practice social media, not sociopath media. Um, and it's particularly hard for candidates and campaigns because you either not the candidate controlling the voice. So it's not something that people feel comfortable doing or the candidate chooses not to devote the time to engaging with their social audience. And so as part of that, I guess, you know, what do you see as politically the danger of relying on social media too much? I guess both for campaigns and candidates, as well as I think even more broadly. Well, we've gotten really addicted to using social networks and digital media to grow scale quickly and avoid investing in our own infrastructure. So, you know, one thing that Republicans are having to play catch up on is building email lists for fundraising, right? The left have been doing this for, you know, at least a decade before we really got serious about this. And so the lesson has to be don't build your house on someone else's land. Because there are a lot of campaigns who would be left out in the cold if Facebook or Twitter shut down tomorrow. Mm. I think what we're going to see is a return to 
sort of the pre-1900s ad-supported model of media, where you had actually political parties and candidates supporting things like newspapers. I think we're going to see more of that in the political space, where uh, less reliant on the distribution mechanisms of a platform like a Facebook or Twitter or Google, where there are maybe not editorial decisions, but certainly distribution decisions that impact uh, how we reach voters that we need to speak to. So we're going to see more investment in infrastructure and owning those audiences because it's really important to understand that you do not own your followers on Facebook or your followers on Twitter. Those are shared with the platform. They're getting something out of it. They're getting to sell ads against your content. You're getting something out of it because they're distributing your content to their users. And so when that marriage stops working, as we're starting to see some frustrations with Facebook around politics, you're left in a bad spot if that was the primary place that you were relying on your, your reaching your voters. Social media and politics, a bad marriage that stops working. I gotta tell you, that's one of the cheesiest comparisons I think you can make around the topic, but I think it's obviously an apt one. You know, if we are talking about this relationship as a marriage, I spoke to someone who I guess you could call a relationship counselor. So I know you, but for those that don't know you, the person that I'm talking to, introduce yourself. What's your name? What do you do? Why are, why are you here with us today? My name is Zach Rauman. I was Andrew Yang's campaign manager during the 2020 presidential race. The Yang Gang. The Yang Gang, exactly. I went to the team. I was like, guys, we're, we're calling it Yang Gang. We're going to do it. And they're like, that's awful. Like, do not do that. Um, that's terrible. It sounds like Gang Bang. It sounds horrible. Like, go down the list. That's part of why I wanted to talk to him. I mean, can you think, Zach, of a candidate in 2020 whose popularity relied so much on social media? Yeah, I think both in 2020 and in his mayoral campaign in New York this year, Andrew Yang's this great example of how Twitter popularity allows you to become a big media figure, even if it doesn't necessarily translate into on-the-ground support from voters. And he said, uh, I'm running for president. And we said, of America? <laughs> of, of the country? Um, this country? I covered Andrew Yang, and the thing that I remembered really vividly, a lot of things I remember very vividly, is that social media played a large role mm -hmm. in Andrew Yang's campaign, either by virtue of you wanting it to or because of, of people's interest in Andrew. Talk to me a little bit about the role social media played um, for you guys in, in Andrew Yang's presidential campaign. Look, social media is important for everyone, but for certain candidates, and, and we were one of them, where we're talking about a guy who has no political experience or following and no money, no no notoriety, nothing. All the things you're supposed to have when you're for president, we had literally zero. And mm -hmm. what we learned was that we couldn't try to make Andrew Yang appealing to the traditional crowd. We had to find the crowd that found Andrew Yang appealing. And so social media for us became a tool to build our army. Um, and that is the probably the biggest thing social media helps with right now. I call it identity branding. So instead of having a brand identity, you're Coca-Cola, we're red, we're white, but it's letting people identify personally with your brand. And the, the basically three steps, like creating what I call a like us persona. So like us, you're an outsider, you're logical. And then finding the tribe, which um, was step two, which is going on podcasts and alternate media. And then the third one is in letting people in. And what social media does is lets folks feel part of 
a movement, a person that is completely different than like the canned talking point that's clearly been written by 20 people that the candidate has tweeted out. There, there are many, many social media sites, and many of them are used every presidential election, every campaign, midterms, it doesn't matter, male races. Um, talk to me a little bit about what each platform hmm. allowed you guys to do and, and how they can be helpful. Like, and, and I, I'm happy to. And look, I, I would say this. There's not really a right or wrong answer hmm. um, as long hmm. as you're doing this in a way that I think brings people along for the ride. Um so for us, for a little context, like I said before, we wanted to build an army. So we wanted folks to identify with Andrew and then be able to share that. When people were asked in the Republican primary in 2016, who are you voting for? People would say, I'm voting for John Kasich, what if Ted Cruz, whoever it was. When it came for Trump supporters, they would say, oh, no, I'm MAGA. Like I, it was a visceral, I'm make America great again. So for us, we we coined it Yang Gang. So the driver was we wanted this army. We wanted people to say... Mm -hmm. I'm Yang Gang or like, you know, like, oh, heck yeah, I'm Yang Gang, like feel pride and be able to share it. Right. Zach, one of the things that we often hear and I we often say, especially when you're having a rough day on Twitter and there's a lot of trolls, is that you have to remind yourself when we all do this, like Twitter's not real life. Twitter's, Twitter's not, not real life. Twitter's not real life. Twitter's not real life. And we heard that Democrats on Twitter aren't entirely representative of the party's rank and file, right? Because the party's rank and file, the base of the Democratic Party are older black voters. Mm -hmm. And my nan is not on Twitter, right? Got a Facebook, not on Twitter. So what was your strategy to kind of navigate that difference and how important um, was like the online side to your campaign of of balancing Twitter's not real life, Twitter's not real life, and the fact that you need it, and especially for you guys, need it to um, sustain your campaign? I mean, I'll be honest, I don't think we did a great job of that. I think that's really, mm. really hard. It's one of the reasons a lot of politicians are still playing a traditional playbook that I think is slowly dying, but it's there's a number of core voters in both parties that are not as active on social media or online or even consuming media the way we all do when we're following politics. And so, I mean, there's a number of examples there. Like, I believe Andrew Yang was the first candidate to win the Iowa youth poll mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and not perform in the top two on caucus night. So there is a massive disconnect between, let's call it your core Democratic voters and who's online and particularly young people. But Twitter does not vote. Eric Adams just won the mayor's race and I, I have, we both have more followers than Eric Adams on Twitter. Were you ever worried about like, oh crap, I think we're missing the like real life perspective by focusing too much mm. on on Twitter and, and, and kind of the online aspect of the campaign? In order to get past a certain small percentage of your diehard supporters, um, and that can range from, for Donald Trump, who's in everybody's living room, it was 20 to 30% in that primary in the beginning. When he became more and more legitimate was when, frankly, the Republican establishment started lining up behind him. And what is the establishment? Your mainstream outlets taking you seriously. It's surrogates that are well, other elected officials or pundits or experts going on and talking about you like you're serious. Doesn't mean they're singing your praises, but they are talking about you like you're relevant. It is elected officials um, endorsing you or working on your campaign. It's big consultants and when we started, we had none of that. So we had to go the opposite and we had to go to the internet and we had to go to crowdfunding and small dollar donors. The tactics you need to get attention that way are not the same tactics you need to impress the establishment and get them to line up behind you. In fact, you can make a really strong argument that what you need to do 
to compete as like the long shot hurts you from actually competing as a contender. Um, and that's one of the things we felt. I'd venture to say that you thought that social media messaging had a pretty positive impact on your guys' campaign um, for president. But I am curious what, I, what you think about how um, social media messaging has a negative or a positive impact on the Democratic Party's platform writ large, right? Like, what's mm. what's the area where you think Democrats are making a mistake right now by kind of chasing the social media, like, trying to win the Twitter wars? Like we're seeing that a lot. I feel like it's an incentives problem, where if you are a smaller candidate, or many candidates in general, you want the Twitter likes, the retweets, because that ends up turning into donations and other press, right? Mm. But I think the reality is what is appealing on Twitter is not always appealing to the rest of the world. And I think, I mean, you could go down the list on policies, uh, defund the police. And now there's nuance to all of this, but that's kind of the challenge. I'll, I'll tell you this quick, quick story. It just happened. If I'm in the wrong, please push back. Bernie Sanders, who we like, was doing an event standing with the Starbucks union workers in Buffalo, New York. And this event was scheduled at the exact same time as the Buffalo Bills playing the New England Patriots. Now, hear me out. You're like, okay, bro, you like football. Sure, fine. I do like football and I like the Bills. (laughs) I basically tweeted something that did not get received well by those on Twitter. But saying, like anyone who's in Buffalo knows that what's going on on Monday night is the Bills Patriots. Not like a bro thing. That's a Buffalo thing. So my point is, we're not actually trying to talk to people. Because if anyone was really talking to the actual baristas in Buffalo who would be open to being in a union are probably paying attention to the football game as opposed to the meeting. And if you look at Twitter, you wouldn't notice that at all. Zach, as always, thank you so much. Great talking to you. Um, And good luck. You have to send me your book when it comes out. I will. Thank you, guys. This is fun. So, Eugene... We've heard now from two guys who've tried to manage social media campaigns from the front row. Which would probably mean we're done. The show's over. I can go home. Everyone have a good weekend. One would think, perhaps. But <laughs> if if social media has all this power, then I kind of want to know how much the Twitter sphere is actually, you know, representative of the country. More work. Hey, Aaron, this is Zach. Uh, I'm actually the one who'll be conducting the interview. Oh, nice. Uh, Nice to meet you. And to understand that and how social media could be warping American politics, I talked to Aaron Smith. Nice to meet you. Uh, apologies for my rather ramshackle surroundings. I am recording from my closet. Uh, for I was, I was, I didn't want to ask, uh, but yeah, that that, does, that is what it looks like. <laughs> you know, we're in year two of this freaking pandemic, so I, I feel like all decorum has gone out of the window at this point. <laughs> he spends his time looking into this at the Pew Research Center. Uh, I'm the director of the Data Labs team at the Pew Research Center. Uh, And so the data labs team uses uh, data science and computational social science techniques uh, to study uh, social science questions. So one of the questions that you've looked at is how social media is representative or not uh, of the real world. And there's this common meme, I guess, of, you know, Twitter's not real life. Um, Can you describe that a little bit? You know, is Twitter representative of the real world? Uh, sure. So uh, I will say to, to the extent that, that there are, you know, real people on Twitter uh, engaging in their lives, that it, it is at least representative of a, of a subset of the real world. Uh, but when we uh, look at Twitter use, specifically surveying people um, and asking them whether they use Twitter or not, 
we see that that certain types of Americans are, are more likely to use Twitter than others. And, and it breaks down in a, in a few ways. The high level summary is that Twitter users, um, at least the Americans that are on Twitter, tend to be younger, more likely to be Democrats or uh, generally identify with the Democratic Party, and more likely to be um, college educated uh, than the population as a whole. Do you see that disconnect sort of translate in terms of which ideas or policies get favored online versus ones that sort of percolate in politics at large? So I don't know that we've looked at exactly that question, but we do see some very interesting differences just in terms of how they think about political discussion and political engagement. And so to to give you a few examples of that, we did a survey of of Democrats during the primary season a few years ago and found that Democrats on Twitter were more likely than, than Democrats writ large to say that they prioritized Candidates who, you know, basically pushed for their own views, regardless of whether they, you know, sort of trampled on the other party rather than seeking out compromise. You know, in a more recent study, we we asked folks, you know, how they felt about uh, different types of online content and and you know, sort of the interactions that they have online. And we found a really interesting distinction among the most active Twitter users in particular, which was that they were about twice as likely to say that they had encountered harassing or abusive content on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And yet they were actually much less likely than uh, other users of the platform to say that the tone or civility of the discussions on the site were a major problem. So basically what they're telling us is, in a certain sense, social media is a, is a bit of a, a bit of a cesspool, but it, it really doesn't bother me. And in fact, you know, in some senses, that that may actually be a little bit of of what they're there for is to to get in the fight. You know, if you're looking for a sort of distinction between Twitter users in general uh, and and really the most active users of the platform specifically, it's it's you know they're really in the fight in a way. What are the incentives for political speech on on Twitter? Does that incentivize, I guess, more aggressive political views or? if not even views, more aggressive rhetoric? I hesitate to say that it incentivizes. And what we can say is we, you know, we can look at what people are doing and sort of you know, uh, line them up with other things. And so I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples of, of places where we've done that. So we did a study a few years ago um, looking at all the tweets and Facebook posts from uh, members of Congress and ranked them on whether they um, expressed agreement with the other party disagreement with the other party or what we call indignant disagreement with the other party. So this is, you know, you can think of that as dunking or this, you know, this person or party is is actively bad for America. So what we found was that those types of posts, those ones that expressed indignant disagreement, got quite a bit more uh, response from the audience in terms of likes and comments and shares. That sort of language is what tends to, you know, get the most audience engagement. I'm curious if you have any thoughts as to whether President Biden and the Biden administration is, I guess, more cognizant of the on Twitter versus off Twitter disconnect um, than the media or even other politicians. One, the, the the notion that Joe Biden was was not necessarily the candidate of the the Twitter primary is very much the case. Uh, so he, you know, had around uh, twice as much support among. Uh, Democrats off Twitter as on Twitter. But I think the notion that the types of conversations and um, the types of people you might be engaging with is equally applicable um, if you're um, a journalist as as if you're uh, a, a politician or, or someone running for office. Do you think of social media as an echo chamber? I'll ask that. <laughs> 
Oh man, there's a whole there's a whole literature on this uh, that that I could go very deep in that I'm probably not. There's a guy, uh, Chris Bale. His hypothesis, which I actually find quite convincing, is is not that the problem is that we're all talking to people like us. It's that uh, social media is actually surfacing you know, basically versions of the other side that we can immediately, you know, demonize and dunk on. And, and that it's so that it's actually, it's not that, you know, I, as a Democrat, I'm hanging out with a bunch of Democrats. It's that uh, I, as a Democrat, am exposed to the most, you know, extreme straw man, uh, ridiculous version of, you know, Republicans that exist on the planet, um, who are there specifically trying to, you know, get a rise out of me, just like I'm trying to get a rise out of them. That is actually what what drives people to degrading language or harass people or, or do those sorts of things. Hopeless Twitter addict, Zach Stanton. Thank you very much. <laughs> My pleasure as always. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Carlos Prieto. And our senior producer is Jenny Ament. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, follow, rate, and review us wherever you listen. I'm Eugene Daniels. Thanks for listening.